Okay. So the first Wednesday in December is the deadline for getting the gifts in for New Hope. Okay. So keep that in mind. You've got a week from Wednesday, 10 days roughly. Okay. All right. So let's turn our attention to scripture this morning. Um, I want to say that I've only done this twice in the last six months or so. I've, um, we, we, every once in a while, and it, it's rare, but every once in a while, there's a, a message that comes up that, um, that I'm not sure a PowerPoint is going to be helpful for. So uh, on almost every Sunday, um, uh, of the year, you're gonna, we're going to have a PowerPoint that goes along with this. It just keeps us in the flow. And I know a lot of people, uh, the visual is helpful, helps keep them focused, helps keep things clear. Every once in a while, uh, maybe, um, uh, well, for a variety of reasons, we're just going to unplug from that every once in a while. And there's no PowerPoint this morning. It's just going to be a, a um, well, it's going to mean that we're all going to have to choose to stay even more engaged than usual and, and exercise our own hearts and minds into staying connected to, uh, to God's word today. This is the last message in this series of messages on the church, and I guess that brings up another announcement that I should make, and that is that next week, uh, this coming week is every, every week, every Thanksgiving week is a standard vacation week for my family and I. Um, it's very likely that my wife and I are going to be out of town. Uh, we were just talking about how seldom we get out of town together. And I mean, it's just, it's shameful how rare it is. And, uh, uh, and so... I'm actually not sure that I can think of a time when, since we've had children and my wife and I have been out of town. We might do that this coming weekend. So um, regardless, it's a vacation week this coming weekend, and our brother John Jodon is going to be sharing with us in the, in the Sunday morning, for the Sunday morning message next week. I'm pretty excited about that. Um, so if I'm not here, I'll be looking forward to, to listening online. Uh, but... Um, but he will be here. He will be here with us uh, next Sunday. And the second part of that uh, of that announcement is: uh, I know I've said this twice now. This will be the third time I'm saying it. And um, and I, I'm just really looking forward to December. I've been I've been preparing in my heart a series of messages for for the the four Sundays of December that I'm really excited about. Uh, and I kind of joked about this a couple weeks ago. You know, you build something up in your own mind and it gets so big that the only, way, only place you can possibly go is down from what your expectations are, you know. But, but that being said, I, I, I'm making no guarantees about how good it will be, it will be preached or taught. But what I, what I am excited about is the subject matter. And I can't wait to focus our attention on one specific theme for those four weeks and, uh, and I'm just itching to get there. So two weeks from today, a new series starts in December. 
and yes, I'm deliberately not telling anybody what it is, and yes, I'm really excited about it. So I, I feel like a kid in a candy shop. I can't wait for Christmas this year. So um, looking forward to December. So we've come to the last in this series of messages on the church's identity in action. We've considered the church as the bride of Christ, as the pillar in support of the truth. We've looked at the church as the household of God, and then last week we looked at the church as the body of Christ. And this morning, I want to close this series by examining what it means that Scripture says that we are the church of the living God. We are the church of the living God. We are not going to spend our time in this text. Throughout this series, I've, always, I've already referred to this text twice before. I want to look at it a third time this morning. It's not going to be the text that we're going to focus on. We're going to turn elsewhere. But it's just, it's just the text that introduces uh, this idea to us. Okay? So look with me at 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3. I want to read verses 14 through 16 once again. 1 Timothy 3, verses 14 through 16. Paul writes to Timothy and he says, I am writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. But in case I am delayed, I write so that you may know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. And by common confession, great is the mystery of godliness, he who was revealed in the flesh, was vindicated in the spirit, beheld by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up into glory. Taken up in glory. Verse 16 gives us what is a basic creed of the church. I say a basic creed because, um, because of course, we know that there are various creeds of the church that have been developed throughout the centuries. But this is one that we have uh, given to us in Scripture. It's a, it's a basic creed. That is a, a most basic description of what is believed by Christians that unites us. It's a basic creed, or in the language of the text, it's a common confession. This is what we as Christians confess. All right? So would you do me a favor this morning? And let's join, well, see, this is going to be difficult. This is where I should have had a PowerPoint. Um, because we can't all read from the same translation, can we? Um, but I'll tell you what, read it from your own translation. We might, we might come out with some different words along the way. But let's read verse 16 together, okay? And don't mind that there's someone behind, next to you reads it a little bit differently. But let's confess together as believers in Jesus Christ this creed, this confession that unites us as, as Christ followers, okay? You ready? He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit, beheld by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. This is the confession of the church. This is what we believe. This is the creed, a basic creed of the church. Notice that it is Christ-centered. This would be the minimum for membership in the body of Christ. You have to believe this in order to be a member of the body of Christ. It's a Christ-centered statement, and it's focused on His saving work on earth. 
it closes with an emphasis on his resurrection in that he did not just die and stay dead, but that he was taken up into glory. That is, he was raised from the dead and therefore has an ongoing existence in glory. The risen Christ. So we have this basic of God becoming flesh, dying for the sins of mankind, and being resurrected unto glory. This basic truth that unites us as believers. In Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, we get some additional information about what it means that he is in glory. In Hebrews 7.25, we know that his ministry in glory is an eternal life making intercession for us. That he ever lives to make intercession for us. Now, let me, let me just real quickly give you two ways that intercession might, might be taking place in heaven. I don't know what you picture when you picture in your mind Jesus making intercession for us. Here's one possibility, that he is ever living at the right hand of the Father, saying to the Father, my blood was shed for these people. Uh, uh, I know, listen, this is me supplying a narrative that is nowhere in Scripture, but you get the idea. I know you just saw his sin, but my blood covered it. I know there's a voice that speaks an accusation against him, but my blood has covered that sin. It may be that Jesus is speaking words of intercession on our behalf. Okay? That he is interceding before the Father for us. But the second possibility is that when you get to the book of Revelation and you read that, that what has appeared before the Father is one whose appearance is like a lamb newly slain. It may very well be that, that he's not standing there all these thousands of years, 2,000 years since he died, saying the same kinds of things over and over again, remember, reminding the Father that he died for us. But it may very well be that his simple presence in heaven, bearing the marks of, of his death, is enough to intercede for us constantly. That he appears there, the marks are still on his hands. The, 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 the thorns that, that pierced his brow, that the visible effects of the crucifixion, you can say it this way, that the marks of the crucifixion, the scars that were left, are intended to be an eternal intercession at the right hand of the Father, that the evidence of sacrifice for sin is constantly before the Father so that there can be no accusation against God's people. I don't think it's necessary for him to be standing there perpetually saying, Father, forgive them. They know not what they're doing. I think it's sufficient that, that he bears the, the, the marks of the wounds that paid for our sin. Whether or not he ever intercedes with words is, well, it's certainly possible that at times he does. But how many of you would agree that the marks of the crucifixion are sufficient reminder for the throne of heaven to remember that there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. That there's an intercession that is made for us constantly. There's a heavenly reminder. Jesus 
Lamb of God. There's a constant reminder uh, in, in, in the th at the throne of heaven that our sins have been atoned for, that our sins have been forgiven. So he pleads for us. He has been received up into glory, taken up into glory, and there, there he pleads for us. There he intercedes for us. There his wounds uh, uh, plead for us, speak on our behalf. All right, that's a good place to say amen, but I won't require it, right? I know myself well enough to know I'm thankful that there is a perpetual intercession being made in heaven on my behalf. I'm thankful for that. Amen? All right. That being said, what is the significance of the phrase, the church of the living God? The church of the living God. We know the creed that unites us as the church of the living God. We understand that basic truth. But what is the significance of the phrase, the church of the living God? All right, just one second here. The, the word church, we've already talked about this. I'll just do it as a reminder. The word church refers to an assembly. An assembly. It is those who have been called out. But not just called out, called to a specific purpose. Called out from in order to be called to a very specific purpose. So we have been called out from a lost world, called out from an antichrist world, called out from a world that did not acknowledge the Lord Jesus Christ. We've been called out from that world for the purpose of the one who did the calling. Now let me just pause there again one more time. The fact that we've been called out from the world needs to be coupled with the fact that we have been set apart unto God for his purposes, that our lives are not our own. We were saved for a purpose. We are to glorify our God with our body and our spirits because they are his. He purchased them. They were paid for by a price. And, and so we've been called out of this world, but we've been called out from this world to serve the purposes of the one, the God, who has called us and separated us unto himself. We now belong to him. We serve at his pleasure. We are, we are here for his purposes. My brothers and sisters, it is easy to turn God into a genie in the bottle that serves our purposes. The reality is we serve his purposes. We are here for him. Amen? We're here for him. Yes, he hears us when, I, when we pray. Yes, he ministers to our needs. But yes, primarily we serve his purposes. We are here for him. We have been saved for him. Called unto his purposes. So the key for us this morning, understanding a little bit about what the church means, reminded that we are called out from the world, separate unto God. We understand the word church. We are the church of the living God. So it's the living God part that we want to focus our attention on this morning. What is the significance for us in that phrase, the living God? So in order to, in order to understand that phrase um, uh, appropriately, I think it's going to be useful for us to turn to another scripture. So I'd like you to turn to Hebrews chapter 12. And boy, I want to I, I read, I, I think this is a high watermark in Scripture. This is one of those places where you say to yourself, um, 
you know, Shakespeare, you said some things well, but you never got to the level of Hebrews 12, okay? Hebrews 12, verses 18 through 24. Listen to this scripture this morning. The writer of Hebrews, contrasting the covenants of Sinai and Zion, says this, For you have not come to a mountain that may be touched and to a blazing fire and to darkness and gloom and whirlwind and to the sound, to the blast of a trumpet and the sound of words, which sound was such that those who heard begged that no further word should be spoken to them. For they could not bear the command, if even a beast touches the mountain, it will be stoned. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I am full of fear and trembling. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel. Now, we're going to just go through this passage real quickly together, at least in summary form. Let me give you a brief description of the book of Hebrews to provide context. Hebrews was written prior to the fall of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. It was written before the fall of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. So here's what you've got going on. You've got a group of Jewish believers that are present, and that's primarily who the writer of Hebrews is writing to, Jewish believers, okay? He's writing to Jewish believers under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. God, anticipating the fact that Jerusalem and the temple are about to be destroyed. They're about to be destroyed. These Jewish believers need to understand that no longer is Jerusalem nor is the temple essential to their relationship to God. They need to understand that something better has come and that what's about to happen does not need to destabilize their faith in any way. So the writer of Hebrews, inspired by the Holy Spirit, presents to them a treatise which kind of of, uh, on the surface just says, let me explain to you that the old covenant is inferior to the new covenant. And that, in fact, the Old Covenant was was a temporary arrangement that was intended to be a picture of the fulfillment that was going to come in the New Covenant. Oh, and then secondarily, by the way, this book is written because Jerusalem's about to be taken over by Gentiles and the temple is about to be desecrated and destroyed. The sacrificial system is going to go away completely. There will no longer be any ability to properly offer sacrifices. And you need to know that that's no problem. It's no issue. The sacrifices were for a time, and now they're done. Their time is done. The sacrifice for sin has been offered. And there is no need for this system any longer. It's finished. It's accomplished its purpose, right? And so there's a, there's a preparing of these Jewish believers for what's about to happen. 
The purpose of the author is clear. He reassures these Jewish believers in this book. And so in this passage here, what is maybe one of the high watermarks, certainly of this book, but maybe of the New Testament as well, he says something like this, the covenant that was established at Sinai is not the one that you've come to. Notice how verse 18 begins, for you have not come to a mountain that can be touched. That's not, where, that's, not, that's not what this is about any longer. It's not what this is about. Verse 22, but you have come to. Here's what you have come to, right? He lets them know that the old covenant of Sinai was a temporary arrangement and an inferior covenant to the new. It was a foreshadowing of the reality that was going to be found in Christ, which was not going to need a temple. Now, Hebrews is just full. It's just chock full of of this messaging. It is laser focused on this truth. The passing away of the old covenant and and the, the the superiority of the new covenant to the old. It's full of this. It's full of showing us how the old covenant was picturing for us the new covenant that was to come. And so in Hebrews 12, 18 through 21, the writer of Hebrews describes the Mount Sinai experience when the old covenant was established, complete with the fact that Moses was scared to death when he saw this. (laughs) Notice, Notice verse 21. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I am full of fear and trembling. All right, now, just for a second. When you think back on history, and you think about events in history that you would like to to be able to take a time machine, go back and see, what events would you most like to go back and witness? Can I tell you this? Um, There's plenty of them that you, you might go back. There's plenty of them that you might go back to. But, you know, George Washington crossing the Delaware is important. Anyone could legitimately say, I'd like to go back and see. But compared to Mount Sinai, that is not even Whistling Dixie. (laughs) Okay? You think about times that you could go back to. The birth of Jesus Christ and the announcement by angels that, that the Savior has come. That'd be a, that, the cross and the resurrection. These would be moments that you think to the day of Pentecost. These would be times when you would think, man, I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall for that event. I'd like to go back and see that. There's any number of events that you could go back to But all the events of history pale in comparison to the significance of those events that are related to God's dealings with man. And let's face the fact, Sinai was one of those significant moments of God dealing with mankind. The key figure in that moment was Moses. And the reality is that what Moses experienced 
on that mountain, seeing that mountain, is described for us here in, in, Romans, in, in Hebrews 12 as being something that scared Moses to death. Put the fear of God in him. It was, it was frightening, frightening to the point of making a grown man tremble. It's terrifying what he saw there. What does he see? Well, he, he describes it there in, in Hebrews 12. At least in part, there's a blazing fire and there's darkness and there's gloom and there's whirlwind and there's blasts of trumpets and you can hear voices speaking, right? And, and this warning that nothing and nobody can touch the mountain while God's presence is on it. Anything that touches that mountain while God is there must die. It must be put to death. It's an awesome and frightening experience, Mount Sinai is. And so, with all of that understanding, and if you can go back in your mind and remember what you've read through the Old Testament and the account of, of God's people at Mount Sinai, you get this vivid picture in your mind of what it must have been like on that day. The writer of Hebrews says, to, to these Jewish believers, that's not what you've come to. But please hear this. But that's their whole cultural and religious history was completely wrapped up in that one event. It was all centered there. Everything that identifies us as a people is based on the, the covenant that God established with us through Moses on that mountain. And the writer of Hebrews has the unmitigated gall to come along and say to these, these Jewish believers, that's not it. It's not it. It's not what you've come to. You know, honestly, as, as, I've, as I've talked theology with people over the years, and, and talked with people about the relationship of the New Testament believer to the Old Testament law. And, and interacted with people who, who emphasized um, law-keeping as, as the roots of Christianity and therefore an important part of. And, and I don't know how God could have communicated the, 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 the fulfillment of that covenant any more completely than allowing the temple to be destroyed. So that the very heart of that practice is completely removed and it cannot be acted on any longer. Cannot be. There's no way for it to be. The very heart of it has been torn out. And this, this, this book of Hebrews comes along and says, you have to remember that, that no blood of an animal could atone for sin in the sense of cleansing a person's conscience. That could only be done by the perfect sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. Only his sacrifice. So you have to understand that the whole sacrificial system 
was nothing but a temporary arrangement pointing forward in time to the, to the time when Jesus would fulfill that whole system, complete it, and then make it obsolete. Why? Because it is all completed in Him, fulfilled in Him, and no longer needed to be part of our practice. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of all of this. So having said that's not what you've come to, he then draws our attention to verse 22. Here's what you have come to. Here's what you have come to. And I'm just going to run real quickly through the list of things that, he's come, that he says we have come to. And then we're going to close with that phrase, the living God, that is mentioned again in this passage. Verse 22, the first three phrases belong together. He says, you've come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, uh, the heavenly Jerusalem. Those three phrases belong together. What have we come to? Real quickly, Mount Zion was first conquered by King David. It was first conquered by King David, who is a type of the Messiah. Right? He's the Old Testament king that provides us the template, the picture, for the reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. Right? That Jesus is a, is a king in that, in that sense. We, we get a picture of the Lord Jesus as king, as he's a type of Christ. And then Jerusalem becomes his capital, which is a, which is a symbol for the place where God rules from, where the Lord Jesus Christ rules from, that is, from his home, the place that he rules from. It was where God's people and God's tabernacle found their rest. Right? All the wilderness wanderings, the tabernacle that traveled, finally the tabernacle finds its place of rest in the temple that gets built in Jerusalem, that gets established in Jerusalem. And so please hear this. That whole story, Zion, Jerusalem, it's all a picture of this. David is a symbol of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Jerusalem is a symbol of, of, uh, of the place where God rules from the home that, that is the home for God's people from which the Lord Jesus rules. And, and the tabernacle coming to a rest there, um, the, the, becoming the dwelling place of God, is a, is a symbol of the rest that, that God's people find in the Lord Jesus Christ, right? Come unto me, all you that labor and, heavy, and are heavy laden, you will find rest for your souls. So the ark and the tabernacle find a place of rest in Jerusalem. And the point of this passage is that everything that you see in David conquering Zion and Jerusalem becoming the city of God, the ark finding its resting place in there, all of it is symbolic of something that we experience as believers in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. These phrases do not mean that in salvation we come to Old Testament places. It means that we come to the realities that these, new, these Old Testament places represent for us. That they represent for us. One good way to say it is this. That we have come not to the physical Jerusalem, but he says to a heavenly Jerusalem. A heavenly Jerusalem. The new Jerusalem. So, a lot of folks have looked at this passage and come to this conclusion. When he says you've come to Mount Zion and to the heavenly Jerusalem, that he's saying something like this. The Mount Zion represents believers that are still on earth 
And the heavenly Jerusalem represents believers that are already in heaven. That is, you've come to be part of the people of God. For a time, the people of God on earth. In the future, the people of God in heaven, the heavenly Jerusalem. So what are these phrases communicating to us? They're communicating to us essentially this. The way God's people settled down in that land and developed a new identity and a new citizenship, we as New Testament believers develop a a new citizenship that is based on the relationship that we have with God through Jesus Christ. So you'll have to forgive me for a moment. This is the best way I have to explaining it. Um, I don't do this very often, but it it is what it is. Are there any football fans here today? You have at least a rooting interest. You have a team that is significant to you. Go ahead. Who is it? Penn State? Ohio State. Oh, we're all done now. All right. Uh, This is the time for me to pause and say, um, behold how good and pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. I mean, that couldn't have gone more perfectly right there. We got Penn State and Ohio State, okay? I might come back to that in a second. A couple other hands. It was Ohio State. It was Ohio State. State. We have a marriage relationship. Okay, now it's getting even more perfect. We got marriage issues over here at this corner. Okay, okay. Um, I saw Brian's hand. Philadelphia Eagles, okay. So so I'm bringing that up to say this. Um... The fact that one believer roots for Penn State and Ohio State or Eagles and Steelers or whatever, whatever you want to do, not that they're the, the biggest rivals, but they're two, the two in-state teams that we have. The point is this. Every other allegiance that believers have dissolves in the face of the fact that we have all pledged allegiance to the kingdom of God. It all dissolves. We can have fun with that kind of stuff, but it has absolutely no significance in the terms of the way that we relate to one another. We have pledged allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ, and that citizenship supersedes everything else. I mean everything else. There is no citizenship, including national citizenship, that has any degree of significance compared to our citizenship in heaven. Now, I want you to picture this just for a second. When the writer of Hebrews is writing this to the Jews, he is literally telling them that they have to give up every single thing that was primary to them in their Jewish identity. Why? Because it's all going to be overrun in a short amount of time And you need to understand that you have come to a greater citizenship and that what unites you is Jesus Christ. Do you hear how significant what he's saying to these people is? Everything that has identified who you are. Listen, because for the Jewish people, it goes way beyond what it it is for us as Americans. They didn't have just a a national identity. They had a legitimate, biblically given, God-ordained religious and spiritual identity. And he was saying to them, you've got to give it all up in order to understand 
that you've come to a new covenant and that it is citizenship in heaven and the person of the Lord Jesus Christ that you have pledged your allegiance to and that, and that unites all of you now. That's what this is all about. I mean, this statement in Hebrews 12 could not be more life-altering for a Jewish person. It all melts away in the fact that that all of those symbols are being fulfilled in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and that that's now who you are. It's huge. It's huge. Listen, there was literally a time in my life when one of my uncles kicked me out of the house for not rooting for the Philadelphia Eagles on a given Sunday. I think it was his way of thinking he was being a good uncle to get me on the right team, you know, get me on the right side. He kicked me out of the house, and when he did, I looked to my dad for help, and my dad hung his head in shame and pointed at the front door. <laughs> That's what he did. I remember walking out of the house, being outside of the house. It was probably about 35 degrees in Philadelphia and, and raining, not quite snowing. And I remember standing on the, on the front porch of my grandparents' house thinking to myself, probably something about my allegiances should change because uh, it's miserable out here today, right? If I'd have been a little bit older, I, I probably should have been thinking something like this. That issue should not divide families like this. I shouldn't be kicked out of my family out of the house because I'm rooting for the Vikings instead of the Eagles. That just shouldn't be part of the equation, right? The point simply is this. Every other allegiance gets checked at the door when you come to faith in Jesus Christ. This is who we are. This is who we are. We're the church of the living God. That citizenship takes precedent over everything else. He says, secondly, we don't think, uh, um, we don't think about this. He says, but, but he says, when we join this group, when we come into this, he says, not only to the Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem, he says, to myriads of angels. We don't think a whole lot in certain circles about the angels. But listen to what he's saying here. He's saying, when we get saved, we join the side that has a host of holy angels. And, and please hear this, by the way. These angels are described earlier in the book of Hebrews, chapter 1, verse 14, as ministering spirits that are sent to minister to those of us who are the heirs of salvation. Please listen to this. Do you know that when you came to faith in Jesus Christ, unseen by your physical eyes, you joined a side in which God has at his disposal an entire army of angels that he can command at any moment to come to your aid. My brothers and sisters, there's help for us. Ministering spirits. How much significance to give to that? I'm not telling you to go home and look for an angel today. I'm just telling you there's a whole army on your side. There's a whole army on your side. It's part of what it is to come to faith in Jesus Christ. The New Testament talks about this. Ministering spirits come sent out by God to serve us, the heirs of salvation. The moment you're saved, there's an angel army on your side. There's an angel army, or, or you joined the side with an angel army, right? The third word there is assembly. 
which may apply to either the, the army of God, the, heaven, the, the angels, the general assembly, or to the church. It may apply to either one. But please understand this. When it says that we have joined this, 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 um, uh, uh, this, um, this general assembly, it means at least two things. It means that we have a great and large family that is a huge number of fellow citizens to share life with. You've come into the general assembly. A huge family to share life with. Secondly, it means not only that, but it means that our names have been enrolled in heaven while we're not there yet. We're not there yet. It means that our names have been enrolled in heaven, that we have joined a general assembly, the church of the firstborn, who are enrolled in heaven. Who are enrolled in heaven. And so listen to this. It means that you have a citizenship that you share not only with those who are alive on this earth right now, but with those who are dead in Christ. I mean, your family's really big. It's really big, right? All the generations of saints that have lived up until now are part of your family. You have this enormous, this, you're part of this enormous assembly that belongs to God, names that are enrolled in heaven. The fourth thing we see in this, in this uh, passage is that you have come to God who is the judge of all. All right, real quickly, how many of you just are looking forward to the next time you get a chance to stand before a judge? How many of you want that as part of your future? I don't think any of us look forward to that, right? Please hear this. The glory of this statement is this. The fact that God is the judge of all the earth is a serious fact. He is the judge before whom all will give an account. But the statement here means this. Through Jesus Christ, you have already come to him. You have come to him. What it means is the fact that he's the judge of all the earth is not something for you to be afraid of anymore. It's you've already come to his side through the person of Jesus Christ. The idea is that you have been welcomed. Listen to this. You have been welcomed so that you can run into the arms of God, who is the judge of all the earth. You don't have to fear that judgment. You've already been accepted by the one who's the judge of all the earth. That issue has already been settled. No, no fear of a judge remains. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The next part is, that you have, been, uh, you have joined the spirits of righteous men made perfect. So this again emphasizes the fact that we're part of a large family. A large portion of it has already gone on into glory before us. Let me make it as personal as I can. How many of you have, have a loved one that has died in Christ and is already in glory? Would you raise your hand if you have someone in your family that's already... Um, how many are looking forward to seeing them again? You know, this gets... Well, I don't want to say that. Uh, every once in a while, I'm confessing to you my humanity here. Every once in a while, I read passages like this, and that thought crosses my mind, something between... That sounds too good to be true, and it sounds a little bit like science fiction. 
there's actually a place where the dead in Christ are waiting for us to join them. And my dad and my grandmom, my grandfather, my granddad, grandpop, my Aunt Vi, my Uncle John and my Aunt Carmela. There's all these people that I can't wait to see again. Why? Because, because we have come to a covenant that means that we have been joined to the spirits of righteous men who have already been made perfect. We haven't been made perfect yet, but they have. And we're part of that company. We're part of that company. We will see them again and be with them again. The last statement here is this. And we've been joined to Jesus, who is the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel. If you know the story, what does the blood of Abel speak? Well, you remember the story that Cain kills Abel? And, and God, when he speaks to Cain, says, your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. Well, what was his blood crying out? What was it crying out? We're not told specifically, but in the fact that it's, it's not as good as what the blood of Jesus was calling out, the whole, the whole uh, account that is there for us in, Gen in Genesis leads us to the conclusion, God is about to punish Cain for what he did in killing Abel. He's about to, to take vengeance on Abel's blood. Boy, it sure seems that that Abel's blood was calling out to God for attention because an injustice has been committed here that needs to be righted. Something approaches vengeance about that. But what does the blood of, the blood of Jesus plead? Well, the blood of Jesus is very specific in that Jesus hangs on a cross and says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they're doing. A blood that speaks better things than the blood of Abel. That's what we've come to. Now, with that understanding really brief of just running through that text really fast, let me close with this. He says that you have, that you have come to the general assembly, the church of the firstborn. This passage, he describes what it is that we have come to uh, to the one who is ever living for us, the living God. Verse 22, you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God. What does this phrase mean? After all of this, the living God. Here's what it speaks to us of. That phrase is intended to communicate the very presence of God to us. Let me tell you what it's a contrast of. In verses 18 through 21, we're talking about God's presence descending onto Mount Zion when he establishes the first covenant. We instead have come to the second covenant, which was instead of God's presence coming to earth on Mount Zion in that, in that terrifying form, he instead takes upon himself human form and comes to us himself in the person of Jesus Christ. The presence of God on earth. God became flesh and dwelt among us. The phrase the living God is in the context of 
God coming to us in his living presence. So I just want to close with a very quick description of the presence of God. The New Testament teaches us that the church, the church is the dwelling place of the living God on earth. Look at that phrase. We have come to the city of the living God. In, in first, uh, first Timothy 3, it's the church of the living God. The church of the living God. How many of you thank God that God's spirit dwells in each of us individually? We believe that? How many of you thank God that you can know God's presence in your own life individually? You thank God for that. But please hear this. We, we rugged individualists of Americans that we are need to be reminded from time to time that there is a very real sense in which God's presence is really properly experienced in the church, not as individuals. Yes, we can experience him as individuals, but we have to remind ourselves that there is, I don't know how to say it except to say it this way, there is, there is another realm of experiencing the presence of God that you cannot gain alone by yourself that is only known in company with the people of God. Why? Because his specific city, his home, his dwelling place is the church of the living God. The city of the living God. In other words, it's a corporate thing, not an individual thing only. I thank God that his presence dwells with us, that, that his spirit lives in each one of us. But we need to remind ourselves that there is a sense in which his presence can only be experienced in certain ways when it is experienced together. Together. All right? There are times when I am at home alone or in my prayer closet. Uh, how many of you ever, when you're alone, just between you and the Lord, sing songs? How many of that's part of your personal relationship with the Lord? Highly recommended, by the way. Can be, should be. I got to tell you that there are times when I am either singing or just listening to music and that tears come to my eyes and I sense the presence of the Lord with me and it's just like, boy, this is great. But I got to tell you something. There is nothing like the presence of God when God's people get together and sing his songs together. There is something powerful that is available to us beyond what any of us can experience alone. Well, I, I, listen, for whatever it's worth, it's just as wonderful as it is to have that alone, it's just somehow more precious to be able to share it with somebody. There's a sense of God's presence that is known in togetherness that is never experienced quite the same way individually. On Mount Sinai, that presence was terrible and is frightening. But in the new covenant, we can literally run into the arms of God and his presence is not a scary thing anymore. It's a precious thing. I'm going to close by just giving you this. 
his presence means two things for us. It's first of all awareness. Awareness. Yes, I'm going to close speaking very experientially. It's awareness. It's awareness. I'm going to beg you not to settle for anything less than this. It is awareness. What do I mean by awareness? Let me use an Old Testament example. You remember Jacob at Bethel? And he has a vision with the ladder going up to God. And what does he say? Surely God was in this place. And what? And I didn't know it. And I didn't know it. A.W. Tozer said it this way, that's the difference between God's omnipresence and God's manifest presence. Omnipresence is he's everywhere. He's right here, Bethel. Whether I know it or not, he's present. Oh, but, but when I see the vision, all of a sudden God's presence has been manifested to me and I know he's here. I know he's here. That experience left Jacob with no doubts. God is present here. There was awareness. Matthew chapter 18, verse 20 says this, where, quote it with me, where two or three of you are gathered together in my name, what? There I am in the midst. Please hear this. We ought to expect when we gather together to experience God's manifest presence. Church was never intended to be an intellectual exercise. It's not a classroom. You're welcome to take notes or you're welcome to, right? But please hear this. We should expect to encounter the living God when we come together. Listen, there, there are segments of Christianity that seem to have relegated this concept to things that lunatic Pentecostals expect. Charismatics. We go to church, it's a good service, we learn something new. My brothers and sisters, we ought to expect to experience the presence of the living God. And I would urge you, these, I would urge you to settle for nothing less and to come ready to contribute in such a way that God's people are entering into and choosing to be aware of together the fact that God is a living God and wants to meet with us. We shouldn't settle for anything less. This is the church of a living God. I'm not saying we're the only one, but I'm saying when we gather together, even if it's only two or three, we ought to expect God's presence to be there among us. It should be our expectation. The second thing it means is not only awareness, but it means blessing. It means blessing. What do I mean by that? His presence in Scripture, when God is present with someone, it means that he is there to be their help and their supply. That is, he's present to bless. When God leaves a person, it means that he is no longer favoring them. He is no longer on their side. He is no longer helping them, blessing them. God's presence means present to bless. And as a result, if you remember, we just quoted together Matthew 18, verse 20, where two or three of you are gathered together in my name. There I am, awareness of his presence. But the verse that comes before that, verse 19, says this, If any two of you shall agree on earth as touching anything, 
It shall be done by my Father which is in heaven. You know what he's saying? Something like this. Yeah, you can pray all alone. Why? Because the effectual fervent prayer of one righteous man avails much. But I got to tell you, when two people agree to pray together, there is something about the people of God coming together that brings the presence of God into that situation. It brings a presence to bless when we do it together that it goes above and beyond what we experience when any one of us prays alone. There is something about God's people praying together. There is something about God's people coming together that brings an awareness of his presence and then takes that presence to a place of blessing that is beyond anything we can experience alone. My brothers and sisters, the church, the church is something powerful. The coming together of God's people is something precious. It escorts us into a living presence that is never experienced alone. I don't know how else to say it. I'm saying that, that it is necessary for us to be together. It is necessary for us to be together. And we should expect God to show up and to do things when we're together that would never happen if we were all by ourselves alone. I want to say it this way just to close. If there ever comes a day when the church has to scatter and cannot meet any longer, God will supply a grace for that day that literally we will meet in twos and threes and his presence will be there. But we better take advantage of the fact that we're not there yet and that there is something powerful about being able to gather together with God's people. There is a presence that we encounter here and we should expect it. We should anticipate it. We should be looking forward to it. I'm going to close saying this. What it means is that in all probability, the biggest burden that you carry in your heart ought to be shared with someone else in the body of Christ that will look at you in the eyes and say, I promise you, I will pray with you about this. Because there's something about God's people agreeing in prayer together on any one thing. I don't know what to tell you other than Jesus said it brings God's hand to bear on that situation. And that he does things in response to his people praying together. He does things there. So I'm urging you to remember that we're the church of the living God. We're the church of the living God. We've come to the city of the living God together. And that his presence is sensed when we come together. And that he does things when we come together that wouldn't be done in other ways. It's just not, it's just not a, a scheduled event that is nice when you can get it. It's an essential, I will miss out on something that I cannot get back if I don't enjoy God's presence together with his people. It's a necessary part, an absolutely necessary part of what it means that we're a saved people. So I'm going to ask you to bow with me this morning.
and we're just going to close. I, I want to ask you to be precise about this. I mean to be, to be very purposeful about this, to be very deliberate about this. Who have you shared with in the body of Christ that you know will pray with you? Who have you shared with that you know will pray with you? We say this often, and, 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 it's, and, and I, I find that it's just, we shake our heads. We all understand. We agree. Please hear this. Brothers and sisters, isolation is not something that you can afford. You can't afford it. You can't run that risk. Satan does things to people. I'm telling you right now. Satan does things to people and gets away with things in people's lives that, that we would be protected against in the fellowship of God's people. It, it is absolutely a biblical fact that we need each other. And I'm saying that to say this. It means that, that there are things that each of us come face to face with that someone else needs to know about so that we can be agreeing in prayer together. I'm not saying that you have to share everything in public and that everything needs to be confessed in public and every need needs to be expressed in public, but it needs to be shared with someone. It's part of the way God designed us to function in the body of Christ, and it's part of the way his presence is designed to show up among us. When you enter into that kind of relationship with someone else, you literally invite the presence of God into the situation you're dealing with. You're inviting his presence and his power into that situation. And it wouldn't be there if you just try to go it alone. So, please, last two minutes before I close in prayer, bow your heads and ask yourself, who have I invited? Where is my, where is my fellowship system? Where does it come from? How have I invited the awareness of God's presence and the power of his presence to bless into my life? By that kind of intimate fellowship with the people of God. It is an essential for us. It is an essential. And if there's something that is there, maybe the Holy Spirit would put his finger on it and say, you need to share it with a brother or sister so that you have backup. So you have agreement in prayer. I'd encourage you to do that as quickly as possible. Do it as quickly as possible. So uh, just real quickly, 
There's a middle school student and wrestler at Northern that is going to be taken off of life support today. Middle school. Jake Leininger, who is Jesse Casian's brother, is this boy's coach, and he has to tell his wrestlers that this is what's going to happen, that this is what's happened this week. And so this is being looked at as a possibility, uh, an open door, right, for this young man's death uh, to be something that it's absolutely going to touch other members of the team. And what does that mean for open doors for ministry? What does it mean for the need for comfort? What does it mean for the gospel, right? So it's just one example of any number of things that we as a church can come together and, and pray over. So let's close. Since this was handed to me, this will be our closing prayer request. Can we all agree? Listen, while I'm closing in prayer, pour out your heart to God and pray for this situation. And just use this as a reminder that there's any number, they don't have to be this dramatic, but there's any number of situations that all of us could open up to someone else. All right, this is just one of those times. I'm only going to do this for 30 seconds. This doesn't happen to me all the time. If you're struggling with something alone, find a brother or sister and share it with them. I don't know if that's for somebody today, but it's just a sense. Please don't struggle alone. Find a brother or sister. Share the need of your heart. Share the burden. Don't lay down in front of it. Fight the good fight of faith. Take someone into your confidence. Let them encourage you and get up and fight. Amen? Don't give in. Don't give in. Fight the good fight of faith. If Satan is assailing your marriage, tell somebody. If your heart and mind are full of doubts, tell somebody. You're not going to get a reaction of shock, surprise, horror. You're going to get a brother or sister that's going to be on your side and it's going to pray with you. My brothers and sisters, we, got it. we have to stand up together. Fight the good fight. Amen? All right, let's close. This is going to be the prayer request we close with that unites us, and I'm just encouraging you to apply it to whatever is present in your life that you need to share with someone. Lord, we just pray for this middle, middle school student. I don't understand. Lord, I just don't understand why a middle school student should be on life support. Lord, I don't know what it would be like to be the family member. I, I can't imagine what it would be like to be a dad. Of a middle, middle school student that I know is facing the end of life today. Lord, please bring comfort to this family. Please draw near to this family. Lord, I don't know where they're at in their relationship with you. If, 
If, Lord, they are believers, then, then pour out the comfort of your Spirit upon their lives and, and remind them of that sorrow that is not a sorrow without a certain measure of comfort. Lord, if they are not believers, then give them the gift of the gospel and salvation through Jesus Christ, through this event that they're dealing with, Lord. Comfort them in that way. Lord, give to Jake the right words and the wisdom to know how to speak with tenderness and compassion to this young wrestling team. Lord, in a way that that will be compassionate in a way that will also be faith-filled so that, so that um, Lord, others are driven to ask the question, what is the reason for the hope that lies within you? Lord, I pray that you would empower him by your spirit as he talks to this young man's wrestling team in this coming week. Lord, would you redeem what to us looks like the waste of a life and a tragedy beyond description? Would you redeem it by bringing the gospel truth and salvation to someone's, someone's heart, I pray? Lord, if indeed this young man has taken on life support, and if indeed there is a funeral to be had, I pray that there would be someone full of your Holy Spirit that speaks there, I pray that that funeral would be marked by a powerful sense of your Holy Spirit's presence. That the presence of the living Savior would fill that place and that there would be a very tender, gentle, appropriate, tactful, tasteful presentation of the gospel that will draw people to the Savior. Lord, give help all around in this situation. I pray. And Lord, I, I just close asking that each of us would take the word to heart, that there is a presence that can be sensed and a presence that enjoys blessing in the togetherness that marks the body of Christ. So I pray, Lord, this morning that if there is a brother or sister that is struggling in one form or another, that they would not keep it to themselves and try to fight alone. But Lord, that they would reach out and share with the body of Christ in one form or another. And Lord, that, there would be, that, they, would, that they would find that there are friends that will stick closer than an earthly brother. That there is a family that they're a part of. And that your presence is powerfully brought into the situation when the church agrees together. Help us, I pray. Minister to each need that is present in the hearts of your people. I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Hey, thank you. That was longer than usual and later than usual, and I apologize. I tested your patience this morning. Thank you for, for staying with me this morning. May the Lord's presence go with you. Man, enjoy your Thanksgiving this week. Enjoy your family. And invite God's presence into that togetherness that you enjoy as God's people. May the Lord be with you throughout this week to come.